0: Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Chris Cannon, someone who I've been lucky enough to work with for several years in the past, is on the show today to give us an overview of one of the most impressive resumes in the business, a behind-the-scenes peek at some of the things that he did back in the day, more currently, and what he'll be doing in the future. Let's hear what Chris had to say. Hello, Chris Cannon. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Levy. So you have a, you know, a lot of years in the restaurant business.
1: You got started, uh... 1979. Was this was that college years or was that with your mom and Grace? That was the right first year college. And this was Brown? No, that was Tufts at the time. You transferred? I transferred, yes. So I started out in a restaurant called uh, The Gloucester House, which was the best seafood restaurant in Manhattan for a long time. I think it closed in the late 80s or so. And the owner was a good friend of my parents'. I grew up a poor black child in Mississippi. No, just kidding. Um, I grew up in Manhattan. My mom was Greek, and uh, I learned how to cook when I was about six or seven years old. Uh, you, you go out there
0: to Greece?
1: Uh, every summer we would go for a long time in the middle of nowhere, you know, goats and sheep running around and, uh, you know, grown tomatoes and the backyard. And, you know, it was a beautiful existence, fishing every day. You know, when we first got to the region we were in, there was no uh, electricity at the time. So we kind of brought the electricity in for the whole area. And um, so every summer, from coming from Manhattan, I kind of lived a, a life of, uh, you know, I had three, three brother-brothers, you know, cavemen running around the mountains and having a good time, eating olives, tomatoes, feta cheese, goat's milk with... Uh, Chocolate in it. Chocolate goat's milk is one of the best things I've ever had in my I, life. I've never had that. It's horrible. <laughs> oh, is that true? You don't like anything with chocolate. <laughs> well, the, I love chocolate, the but- The choctopus thing? But was like uh, infamous. chocolate and goat's milk, it's a big, big, not, not, not a good thing. It's one of those lessons in tasting, you know, that I learned at an early age. Not you know, so that, aphrodite that, that, I can probably guided my uh, wine knowledge in the future. You know what not to mix with things. People <clears> are actually, like,
0: I get a lot of mocha notes in this, and you're like, oh, no, yeah, it's kind of like Turley's Infidel. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working at the Gloucester House, and you were a chef there.
1: Uh, I started out being a manager, and then uh, the owner knew that I really was a no experienced cook. Uh, I mean, I've been cooking for years, and. It was very simple, New England kind of cuisine, but it was really great fish, really fresh, fresh. And uh, he said to me like one day, he said, hey, you know, my chef's leaving. Why don't you train with him and then you can run the kitchen? So I was 23, I think at the time, and I ended up uh, learning everything and uh, cooking there every morning uh, from 6 in the morning till 10. I was the only person in the kitchen. So I took all the deliveries. I – Baked all the breads. I made all the so, sto, so, stocks and soups and sauces and dressings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we would serve over 400 people a day. So um, it, was, uh, it was the old school, you know, learning on the job, you know, really um, getting your, you know, behind kicked in basically. Your yeah. So I would work from six in the morning till like seven at night. And then I was living with my best friend in town and, uh, I take a nap for a few hours. We wake up, have a couple of hot dogs, and go drinking every night. So, you know, I usually slept about three hours a night, Just, as you know.
0: as people in their twenties are wont yeah. to do.
1: That's typical restaurant industry. Uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I got a little uh, <sighs> bored of basically doing the same menu every day. Right? You're like, and, oh, you ordered clams? How original! So I ended up. Um, one of his best friends was the owner of the um, Coach House, which was, you know, legendary. It's where Bobo is. That's where Bobo was, right? And his name was Leon Leonidis, and uh, so he had an opportunity. He was, was doing he Greek, <laughs> another Greek guy. Yeah, Just <laughs> Mr. like the Greek, the Greek mafia, you know. To end up, you know, all those Greek guys aren't too, around too much anymore in the restaurant business, but they're doing diners now. Uh, but at the time, um, he was doing a demonstration of American cuisine in Paris at a restaurant called Shiberta, uh which was a two-star restaurant, Michelin Guide. So he uh, asked me to be a chef. So I went there for. A two week period, and we made his menu in Paris at this very, very refined restaurant. And uh, I really had a great time with the cooks there, and they liked me a lot. So they ended up uh, offering me a stage there, and I uh, stayed there for a year.
0: That's where, like, Arc de Triomphe is? That's that right happen.
1: there. It's a uh, first street on the left as you're going down uh, the Champs Elysees from the L'Etoile, they call it. And so I spent, I was the only guy, American guy in the kitchen. Uh, I learned how to butcher and I mean, basically everything there. I mean, they didn't let me anywhere near the uh, hotline because I was, you know, you know, American and, you know, not particularly intelligent, they thought. And this was like 1982? 84. 84. 84. 84, or four into 85. So um, about nine months in, I tried to get a work permit there. And uh, the French government at the time, there was 15% unemployment. They were like, forget it. No way. Yeah. So I spent a the year there not getting paid. That didn't go so well for my finances, so uh, I decided to come back to the United States. So, when I came back to the United States, I said, hey, you know, I've been cooking for a couple of years, and my ultimate goal was to be a restaurateur. So, um, I decided to, you know, look for an opportunity for in front of the house. So, I had a friend of mine who was Tony May's partner at uh, the Rainbow Room at the time. And okay. So, I went to him, and I said, you know, he said, eh, listen, you know, we're – they had just lost the lease there, and it, were, it was our last season. It was like six weeks before the end of the year, so I got to work there for six weeks uh, during the holiday season. It was you know, total chaos, and it was really a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, the uh, general manager was the brother uh, is, uh Brian Daly, who was Tony May's partner, and uh, I learned how to uh, sell the same uh, floral arrangement. Uh, to a different party eight different times, because all he would make me do is run around to all the different uh, banquet rooms and uh, pick up the flowers and put them back in a refrigerated box. And you know that was that was like one of the big parts of my job,
0: rainbow go, flower
1: room. Yeah, and you know I was twenty four years old, and you know I was running around. It was fun. They had actually a uh, a really great cabaret act with uh, really attractive young ladies dancing every night. So I spent a lot of time over there hanging out with them.
0: How many of those girls did you get to know more personally?
1: Not enough. (laughs) But um, no, it was was a fun time. So at the end of that, Tony May took notice of me and I guess um, the general manager there, uh, uh, Patrick Daly, I guess his name was, the flower guy, um, they were opening this restaurant, Palio. Oh, okay. And they came to me and said, you know, we'd love you to be the assistant GM. So I started there in 1986, the same year that Le Bernardin – opened right next door so you know I knew everybody would there because
0: it's like the same building right
1: same building you know same everything it's where uh, like bar American kind of yeah it's another story later on because uh. <laughs> I took I, I I worked in that space as well um, so I ended up there after you know the chef there was a guy named Andrea Hellriegel, uh who was one of the most famous chefs in in Italy he uh, had a two-star Michelin place in Alto Adige and um, He was very eccentric, um, very difficult. First time working in America, and um, it was a great experience because, you know, really European trained, uh, very disciplined, very orderly. They brought in, you know, half the kitchen was, were cooks from Alto Adige. And it was my first experience in really being exposed to Italian wine and food. And being French trained and working in France and spending all my summers in Greece, I fell into Italian cuisine and I was like, wow, this is kind of like a cross between the two cuisines that I've, I've been very heavily exposed to, you know, Greek and French. And I just took an amazing, just, I loved it. And um, I ended up really, really loving the wine. And um, I took over as a GM about six months into the process because the chef basically ran the general manager out. And, um, I subsequently uh, also took over the wine buying duties. So, you know, I was 25 years old and I was GM and buying all the wine. Because back then, GMs used to to rock the wine. Basically, back then, there were no sommeliers in any restaurants. The general manager basically a lot of times bought the wine. So, you know, I never really was a sommelier, although, you know, people consider me one because I was always doing the double duty, you know, the wine. And, um, Although subsequently, I started hiring, you know, people to be sommeliers. But at the time, there was no sommeliers. And, uh, you know, you really had to be an all-around person, you know, to run a restaurant. You had to really know about wine, know about food, know about everything. Now there's a lot more specialization in the business, which is not a bad thing. It's a great thing, you know. And um, so it was really interesting. Um, I ended up starting my wine journey, I guess, with Italian wine, which I think in retrospect, looking back was an enormous advantage because there's thousands of grape varietals in Italy. Uh, Even within, you know, Tuscany and different Appalachians, there's all these super Tuscan wines, which basically, if you didn't really know what was going on, they change every year their blends. And, you know, you really have to stay on top of your, uh, your game and really taste heavily and stay on top of everything to really, you know, maintain your knowledge and expand your knowledge. You know, I fell into, I mean, obviously I was aware of French wines and American wines, et cetera, but... I think my palate was formed drinking a lot of, uh, specifically at the time, northern Italian wines. So
0: it was great. So you had the, the technique of France and the food, but you had the Mediterranean flavors of Italy in the food. It right. kind of came together.
1: Yeah. And specifically, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting about the cuisine of uh, Andrea at the time was that it wasn't the typical, you know, what everyone thought Italian food was at the time. I mean, Italian food at the time, you know, was kind of red sauce, you know, like, you know, red checkered tablecloth and Chianti flasks and, you know, Tony May really uh, was innovative in that he really was trying to bring in the idea that Italian food was really very refined and very interesting. And that in particular in the North, and this later on in my career, you know, this kind of bit me in the rear end. I don't I still don't understand why, but effectively Northern Italian food is uh Middle European food. I mean, uh, Northern Italy. If you look at Friuli and Alto Adige and Piedmont, basically that whole arc north of uh, Emilia Romagna is was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for many, many hundreds of years. And you know, if you really look at the cuisine of that area, it's it's Austrian cuisine, it's Hungarian cuisine. I mean, you look at uh, famous dishes of Northern Italy. You look at uh, you know, Ville milanese is uh, basically Wienerschnitzel, and you look at uh, bolito misto, which is meats, you know, boiled meats, it's uh, Tafelspitz, and those are both Austrian dishes. You know, a lot of use of uh, smoked meats, a lot of use of sausages, gnocchi, which is basically Spitzel, cabbage, you know. And it was interesting later on in my career when we opened up uh, Alto, you know, we, you know, really wanted to explore that to a certain degree, and... The press kind of said, "Well, that's not Italian food, you know. That's uh, Austrian food. That's this. That's that." And uh, you know, you're like, "Oh, well, you know, Italy's a lot more complex than you think." It's, you know, you go down to to um, Sicily, you have uh, North African cuisine. You have couscous. You go, you know, it, it's it was an empire. There was different uh, manifestations of cuisines from all over the world expressed in Italy.
0: Do you feel like that that's still playing out, like that exploration of regionality of Italy is still playing out in the American market?
1: Well, I think, you know, it didn't – the exploration of regionality of Italian cuisine kind of got stuck for many, many years in Tuscany, mm-hmm. which if you really understand Italian food, Tuscany is not exactly the most refined cuisine in Italy. I mean, it's basically beans and steak and bread with no salt in it, you know, excellent olive oil you know, but not really very refined cuisine. There's been an exploration. I mean, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, restaurants I've opened, Marea was very much pan-Italian, but a lot of uh, exploration of coastal cuisine, you know, in Marque, in Campania, Sicily. Um, osteria e Marini later on, you know, was obviously emilia Romagna. So, yes, but I think we're coming to a point with Italian food where, for many years, it was very frustrating to do Italian restaurants because you were pigeonholed and you were basically put in a box where if you used any non-Italian products, you're like, that's not Italian food. And for us being, you know, I, I worked in French cuisine also. for us being in the higher end Italian market, that was, we we thought unfair because you know, if you go to the best French restaurants, they use products from Morocco and South America sure, using and truffles. Japan and yeah, yeah they do right. pasta now, you know. Right. And, and, you know, they use yuzu and make yeah. sushi and, you know. So French cuisine, they can do anything they want internationally. Italian cuisine was limited to a certain degree by regionality. And in result, I think that was a good thing because Italian cuisine has grown to be the most popular cuisine in the United States – but I think at the highest level, uh, there can be some movement towards, you know, using some international products as long as it stays within the context of the Italian philosophy of food. So you're at 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 Palio and at, at that
0: point it was super popular. I remember there was that movie uh, Light Sleeper with Willem Dafoe when he goes to Palio to make the, yeah. the connection at the bar. No, it
1: was uh you know, in the that was a go go mid eighties, you know, before the eighty seven stock market crash. And, you know, we were doing 170, 180 people for lunch with, like, a sixty to $65 check average. And at dinner, there was, like, you know, almost $100 check average. And we were doing 300 people. So, you know, it was really busy. But then again, at that time, there was 25, 30 great restaurants in New York. And now there's hundreds. So it was a totally different time.
0: And then Hagel died. Is that true? Hell Riegel, had- no,
1: Hagel ended up, um, he took over Palio. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, slightly after Tony May opened up uh, San Domenico, uh there was some problem with the landlord and whatever it was. Changes know, complex, happen. and so the landlord took gave it to Hellreal, and um, he died you know, seven eight years after that. But uh, he was the owner for uh, probably six seven years by on his own.
0: And at some point uh, you segued into Remy.
1: Uh, actually, I. Left Palio to be the maitre at le cirque. Oh, that's Uh, right. That's right. And but that didn't really play out. That didn't pan out. No, because what happened there? I was offered the position um, by Cereo. Well, by Cereo's Benito is a GM for a long time guy. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to take off for three or four weeks because I was tired and I was working six days a week, you know, basically 90 hours a week for. A long, long time.
0: And which iteration of Le Cirque was this? This was- The original.
1: The original. The one that uh, Danielle is in. 65th Street. 65th Street, yeah. And uh, so I actually worked there a couple of days in the dining room, and it was- What was that like? That was- Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Some characters in there? Cereal. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Now, well, we had uh, Benita. uh, Well, Benita was around, and Romeo was the maitre d' who I was going to replace, and he was this very big- jovial italian guy who would uh, spend most of his uh you know in most of his time in service basically um, finishing pans of food behind columns which is very interesting <laughs> and uh you quality know quality control at the yeah, highest you know and stuff. we had a very at palio a very organized reservation system and you know we, we had two levels and we had to be very coordinated in what we were doing and you know i ended up going there and they had a front desk and they had like a like an old, uh, one of those red, uh, di- you know, not di- Calendars. calendar books, planners. planners planners that they would put all the reservations in, and they had absolutely no system. You know, it was, they had like seven, you know, these traditional phones, they had all the dial phones on the walls, and they had like nine phones on the wall, and, they, and during service, they had like eight guys at the front desk, and they'd be all with the wires going across in front of each other. And so I was watching them do this, and you know, they're just writing names down, the, the size of the party in the book with not, you know, twos were not, they were all mixed together. And I was like, so, watching what they're doing. And I'm like, you know, um, looks like you're kind of full there. And they were like, well, you know, basically we just keep taking people until Sirio says stop. So they would just write down like twos, fours, sixes, eights, whatever, and just fill up the book until Sirio walked by and said, no, basta, whatever. So, you know, consequently, I mean, people, people used to show up and, <laughs> and people used to show up and and you know, they'd wait for two or three hours at the bar for their table and you know, Syria would decide which person sat here, which person sat there, and whether you get in or not, whether you could just not even reserve and walk in. And it was just like I was watching this and I was just like, Oh my god, <laughs> this is like controlled madness, you know. Well, the restaurant was called Le Cirque, so it kind of made sense. But it was a total, it was like a totally different era. It was just crazy. Really interesting though, you know, but thank God I didn't actually work there because I probably would have, uh, you know, become a total alcoholic or kill myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it
1: didn't work out because Assyrio's uh, son. His son decided he wanted the job, so they offered me a job as a uh, as a captain and I was like, you know, running a six, seven million dollar business for four or five years and I was like, eh, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. I need to. No,
0: no, my reservation was under maitre D. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You, know, you seem forgot, to have
1: confused my table. You forgot that one too. Um, so I ended up uh, taking a little time off and uh looking around for jobs. And as I said before, you know, in, in town there was like four or five restaurants that I would want to work in and right. you know, all the places I would want to work in, they already had people, you know, so it wasn't so easy. So I heard that um Adam Tahani and Francesco Antonucci, who owned Remy on the Upper East Side which was a really, really popular, big hit restaurant on the Upper East Side that introduced uh, Venetian cuisine, basically, you know, talking about regional Italian cuisine, and grappa and all these things, uh, was deciding to open something in the Midtown area. So I'd spent a lot of time in Midtown, and um, I applied for the job and I ended up uh, becoming the GM there. And uh, it was... Much more modern than almost any, you know, Paglia was a very modern restaurant, but it was done in a very traditional way with waiters that were, you know, wearing jackets and captains and, you know, it was, you know, the structured French kind of system. Um, Remy was a much more kind of modern Italian restaurant that was kind of doing American service like they would do at Union Square Cafe, whatever, you know, waiters in just, you know, a shirt and – you know, an apron and uh, but really professional, really, really well run. You know, and we used to do, and, and also, also not, not so expensive, like medium price point, excellent food. Um, we would do 250, 300, 400 people sometimes for dinner, you know, 180 for lunch every day. You know, we were doing at the peak of when I was there about eight, eight and a half million dollars, which in this day and age is like 12, 13 million dollars. And because you were at theater. District it was area. pre-theater district. It was lunch every day. Lunch was packed every day. Uh pre-theater, they used to fill the entire restaurant pre-theater every night. You know, there's no staggering. They was just like put the pedal to the metal. You know, and every uh I, I I'd get an ulcer every every night around 7:20 to 7:30 with all the people that were behind schedule leaving and as they were leaving, all the people were coming in to be seated for the second seating, and the front was kind of like uh, like uh, the My Lai Massacre for like 25 minutes every <laughs> single night, which uh, I, I made it through it. It was, you know, it was you know, I, I swore to myself afterwards that I'd never run a restaurant like that, you know, that right. you can't fill up the whole place and just have them all leave and have everybody coming at the same time, and it was just, it was crazy. So, but it did really well. It got uh, two stars in the New York Times and... You know, speaking of New York Times reviews, that's at the, the time, time, two, two stars. stars for an Italian restaurant was pretty much the, the highest you could get. Right. I mean, they you know, Brian Miller was the reviewer at the time, and he was a big Francophile, and Italian cuisine was really considered a secondary cuisine at the time. So, you know, we were, being two-star Italian, we were really busy, and, uh, you know, we Farinelli guy gave us the best restaurant in the world for Italian food and all that stuff.
0: But it was great, great experience. Who was there working with you at that time?
1: Well, that's the, uh, probably the the most momentous point in my entire existence was the day that I hired uh, Paul Greco. I was the first And person. why did you do that?
0: No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> actually, <laughs> what was wh- that like? I'll,
1: I'll explain to you why I did it. He actually, um, his father owned a restaurant, uh, La Scala, in Toronto. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he was part of the Gruppo Ristoratori Italiani. So we did a big international, national uh, event at Palio... I don't know, two years beforehand, and uh, Paul and his brother came down with his dad, and I was in the bar in Palio, whatever, for the evening, and I spent an evening with him and his brother and plied them with tons of grappa and alcohol, whatever, and the first night I met Paul, he threw up. And, you know, afterwards, he, like, cleaned himself up. and said, oh, let's start drinking some more. And I was like, hey, hey, okay, let's this go This guy's out. on the team, man. <laughs> this guy's oh, okay. <laughs> drink some more? All right. So no, a couple of years later, he came to me and says, oh, you know, I really would love to work in the city at this, that, and the other. I said, well, i am open up, you know, I'm here at Remy, and why don't you come on and be manager? And uh, that was his first job in the city, and uh, we've been friends ever since. I was in, you know, at his wedding, and, you know, he's really become – a very important person in the food and wine business in New York. And, uh, you know, he drives people crazy, but people love him. And me too. What was he like at that time? Young and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. No, he was, uh, you know, very impressionable. He was from Toronto, Canada, you know, and he was in the business for a long time, but he never, you know, he worked in his family business. He never really worked, uh, you know, for somebody else. So he used to, I mean, to this day, you know, he used to wear bizarre outfits and run around like with these... Kind of like suit suits with you know six inch wide you know gold and blue stripes and drive Francesco the owner out of his mind you know and uh, yeah he 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 he's a person that likes to elicit uh, interesting responses from people so he was the same way then and you know he was incredibly passionate about wine and we used to uh, basically he was studying for the sommelier's exam so every day when he'd come in at uh, ten thirty in the morning we'd have a Glass of wine in the bar, poured blind for him, and we would basically torture him every day. We'd take champagne and take all the bubbles out, and put it in there, and see if he knew. And I remember one time during a really busy Saturday night, some customer had bought a bottle of eighty-five Sasakiya, and my our bartender, bar manager, was really good friends with both of us. And I was like, "Oh, this is great, a great, great opportunity." So the bottle came back, and it was pretty much empty. So I sent a uh, busboy downstairs to get a big magnum of multiple de Bruzzo from the kitchen that they used to cook with. And we poured like, you know, a third of the bottle with the stuff. So at the end of the night, we're like, during the night, we're like, oh, Paul, table 45 left, you know, a third of a bottle of the sasakaya. He's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, you know, he's so excited. So uh, at the end of the night, we're finished with everything. We're doing the money and closing up shop. And we pour it for Paul, and he's like, swirling it around smelling it, it's like oh this is unbelievable this is phenomenal this is great you know and, he's, and we had him going for like 40 minutes 40 minutes yeah
0: wow you guys are you guys are mean 40 minutes long time
1: you know it's a it's trial by uh you know fire <laughs> <laughs> to this day still hates me but it's okay <clears throat> so you're at you're at remy and then
0: uh there was some partnership uh possibilities on the horizon for you
1: uh well at remy no so uh, i mean i started to and after being there for four years and, you know, our business was booming and it was great, you know, and I never got a raise. You know, I'm old school guy, you know, I, was, I never used to ask for a raise. I figured, you know, if you do a great job, somebody should offer you a raise. So I started looking around to uh, do my own business and um, found a spot on the 54th between – right across from the Monkey Bar. Was that 54th? Yeah. And uh, it was a building uh, for Net Lease and it was really reasonable. I was going to have uh, Scott Bryan be my chef and open a place there. Chris's Gay 90s. Something like that. Right next door. <laughs> and, uh, whatever, for whatever reason, the, the landlord, the guy who owned it, was a restaurateur and he had two restaurants he was trying to sell. He sold uh, his other restaurant a couple blocks south and uh, to the Scottos and it became.
0: Oh, sure. Fresco by Scott.
1: Fresco. Yeah. yeah. And so he said, oh, I don't want to sell anymore. I have sold my rest, that restaurant, and I'm going to keep this restaurant. So I ended up, um, a couple of weeks later, I was really disappointed. Uh, Jonathan Waxman, who was you know famous American chef, called me up. I'd met him many times over the years at Palio and at uh, Remy. I said, Listen, I'm opening a restaurant uh, in the building it used to be in, where Palio was, uh, in the Sam space. And uh, I'm going to be partners with Jeff Bliss and Jerry Kretschmer, who own Gotham Barn and Grill and Mesa Grill. And I'd love you to be my front of house partner, whatever. So a week later, I was like, yeah, great, no problem." A week later, I, you know, went to meet uh, Jerry Kretschmer and Jeff Bliss uh, with my business plan, and you know, showed them what I was doing, what you know, what I'd been doing, et cetera. And a week later, they said, "Hey, you know, we don't really want to work with Jonathan, we'll work with you." So I ended up opening up uh, Judson Grill in nineteen eighty nine. I no, don't no, no, know, nineteen ninety four. Is that right? Something like that. <laughs> and um it was you know really huge space you know we were trying to do like an american brasserie kind of thing there um and it was a great experience we hired uh, ed brown to be our chef and uh he had a great reputation at the time and you know it was one of the first times when you know i, I started learning about chefs <laughs> what what would some of those lessons be well you know a lot of time i mean i guess ed brown would be working for um What's the name of the company? Um, Restaurant Associates. uh, time, Rockefeller Center. Right. And, you know, at the time, Jerry and Jeff with between, I mean, Gotham was legendary. Gotham, you know, has been one of the top restaurants in the city for 30 years. At the time, it was one of the few restaurants in the city that was really run in a really professional way for many years. I mean, it was already 10, 15 years old at the time, 10 years old at least. And, you know, Alfred was considered a god, you know, and – Food circles in the United States. So, you know, it was he the sh- height of vertical right. cuisine. Basically, yeah. It was, yeah. You know, it was like 30 inches high from the moment. <laughs> no. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that chefs, were, if they got hired by, you know, those guys, they're like, oh, I've made it. You know, I'm on the same level with like Alfred and, you know, Bobby Bobby Flay was starting to come up. And so I think he went to his head a little bit and he, you know, he didn't really do so well when we first opened. Um, we were trying to control him as far as food is concerned. And, you know, he was, he's a young guy and, you know, it happens. So it ended up that, you know, we were expecting to get a three-star review. We got a, not a great two-star review and, uh, you know, we had problems with food cost, whatever. Uh, you know, so after six months, we, we let him go and we hired his, um, sous chef, uh, John Villa, who subsequently actually, you know, he got two stars with us, subsequently opened up, um, Portuguese place downtown and got three stars. So he was a very talented guy. Um, but subsequently to to him, we only got so far with him, we hired Bill Telepan, uh, who had been sous chef at Gotham. And uh, he got three stars for us. And, uh, you know, it was really the first restaurant, I think, that really pushed the farm-to-table thing really heavily in the city. And, uh, you know, it was it did great. It was great.
0: I remember someone telling me once, that's, that's the time that I realized you could never – Count Chris Cannon out because he got two stars at Judson, and everyone was like, ah, oh, it's probably not going to happen. And then he turned around and got three, and the place was booming.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: Telepan and Telepan was there for like six, seven years.
1: Something like that. Yeah. I actually left him there. You know, I went over to Tudor City to open up uh, a couple years later to open up uh, Lumpero.
0: But I remember before you did that, you hired like Beth Von Vence, right? Yep. And yeah, she was working a with Great you.
1: lady. Um, she was working at. Um, the Greek place at the time. Uh, Molu, not Molu, Milos, I'm sorry. She was at Milos, and I used to go to Milos because, you know, I'm Greek, and it was like a really still packed, but it was at the time really innovative and interesting and different. And she was a wine director, and I really liked her style, so I, a few times I actually poached somebody from someone else to work in my restaurant.
0: But you were doing all these wine dinners at Judson, right? Because I remember people were like, oh man, legendary
1: dinners. Uh, yeah, we got, we were very lucky when we first opened. Um, uh, two people who owned the Burgundy Wine Company, Al Hodgkins and um, Jerry Tastian. They used to come in for dinner quite often. And, you know, we were struggling at the beginning and they really liked the restaurant, really liked the food, liked my wine list. And they came to me, uh, you know, like eight months after we opened and they said, Oh, you know, we, we're doing these series of seminars and dinners, et cetera, et cetera. I said, Would you, you know, would you like to do a special dinner with uh, Romani Conti? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up every – I mean we did not series of dinners all year every year, but we ended up doing this big weekend every December where we would have um, you know, 15, 20 of the top uh, winemakers in Burgundy coming and doing seminars for over uh, all day Saturday, a session in the morning, session in the afternoon and uh, a big dinner. Uh, Saturday night, a big dinner Friday night also, and we did that for like four or five years, which was probably where I uh, learned a lot, a lot about Burgundy, and you know to this day, uh, I would say that uh, my favorite white wine in the world is white Burgundy. You know, and people used to ask me, "Oh, how come you don't just have Italian wines on your list?" Being an Italian restaurateur, later on, I said, "Well, you know, I don't. I think Italian wines are great enough that." you know, you don't have to be afraid to put them up versus French wines or, you know, any other wine from around the world. And I think just to limit your wine list to one kind of wine is is wrong if you're in, the, if you're a real big international kind of place. So.
0: And what was that story like Aubert Duvalet turned to you and was like, what do you think of the wines, Chris? I'm like, well, how did that go down? Like there was a dinner and you.
1: No, that's a, you remember that story? That's yeah. Terrible. yeah. Uh, I unfortunately made the mistake of, um, Going out the night before with a very good friend of mine, Mario Batali, who at the time was at uh, Poe. Because you guys used to rock the blue ribbon. Yeah, we used to go to Blue Ribbon a lot, like twice, three times a week, and um, and
0: it was like you and Calicchio and
1: Bastianich. Joe Tom Calico was really, wasn't really hanging with us at the time, but uh, Scott uh, Scott Bryan used to hang with us a bunch, and um, we used to end up uh, at Poe to start, and Mario would be drinking his. Uh, spritzers, which usually were one of those plastic pitchers from the kitchen with about two-thirds of it wine and a little bit of club soda, and he'd have like two or three of those. And then we'd go out for dinner, and then we'd always end up at Blue Ribbon and usually drinking grappa at about, you know, 3.30 in the morning. So it was one of those nights where we'd finished like two bottles of grappa, and I kind of forgot that the next day I had this big dinner with <laughs> Romani Conti. So I'm sitting next to Alberti Mulain, and he's like asking me, oh, you know, I'm drinking latash and... And I could taste absolutely nothing. So I had to kind of fake my way through it. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> Very Burgundian. <laughs> 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 Haven't had a wine this good since 85
0: Sasakaya.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely was not Montepulciano de Brutzo the last. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah Mario, uh, yeah, we went out a lot. Yeah, you know, back, way back when. What
0: was he like back then? Always enthusiastic? He's or? the same. You yeah, know? same guy.
1: Very intelligent. Uh, really, really uh, fun, you know, the Definitely had a good time hanging out together for sure.
0: So, you, you found uh Scott Conant working downtown, and you were yep. like, Hey, why don't we do something?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I actually found Scott uh through um the sommelier at uh, San Domenico when it when I was working at Palio. Um, was that the guy that's the at Del No, 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 he was uh Sergio Esposito. He's the oh, okay, uh, Italian wine merchants, Italian wine merchants, yeah. And um, <clears throat> so he said, Oh, you got to try my friend's place. I went there to eat place called Chianti on fifty sixth and second I think and I went there and I you know I really missed Italian food I had been at uh at uh, Judson Grill for a while,
0: which was like the first American place you would worked in a long time because it had been Italian
1: yeah I'd been Italian for a while and I really enjoyed Italian and you know I tasted his food and I was like oh you know I really want to do an Italian place again because I really It really sunk in with me how much I really enjoyed it and how much I missed it when I was doing American cuisine. So it took us a number of years, you know, to find a location. You know, uh, we actually had a a, um, deposit on a location down on um, Bleecker Street um, during 9-11. And uh, I was kind of – the guy pulled back out of the deal – Right before nine eleven and I was really upset that he'd pull out of the deal. But then in retrospect I was like, uh probably was a good thing. <laughs> so yeah, so um I was so frustrated with the um the guy backing on our deal that I told my broker, I said, I'll look at anything. Just, you know, whatever you got. So they called me up like the day the day after I told him that. He said, Oh, there's this place in Tudor City and I was just like, Are you kidding me? You know, it's like How do you even get up there, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, I kinda knew where it was. <laughs> So I went up there and I looked at the place and the you know, he told me what the rent was. And the rent was, it was like 50 cents. It's like $7,000 a month. Yeah. You know, it was like people's apartments were more. Right. So, you know, and it was in this old building, beautiful building and a big park in front of it, you know. So I called my partners and I was like, Scott and my other partner, Jane Epstein, and the, I said, listen, you better, you know, come over here and take a look at this thing. And every single person, and I brought some other people subsequently, every single person said, wow, that's really interesting. Look at space. Yeah. You know, Staying and – Stained glass. Uh, so it was a risk, but, you know, my attitude was like, listen, you know, one of the most important things I wanted to do at the time was that, you know, all the good like three-star restaurants at the time were expensive. You know, you had, uh, uh, you know, um, Gotham and you had uh, – Gramercy Tavern, and oh. et cetera, et cetera. You know, they were all, you know, to go out to dinner, it was 90 bucks a person, you know, pretty much. And I was like, you know, I, to me, I was kind of looked at restaurants and what I wanted to do, what eventually was my restaurant, and it was very important to give people a three-star experience at a reasonable price. So that location totally worked for that because, you know, with the rent being what it was, I could afford to really be reasonable in my pricing. And having spent a lot of time with Italian food, you know, I really wanted people to experience Italian food, which and I don't think a lot of other people have really done before, um, really experience Italian force them to experience it the way you do in Italy, which is, you know, have an antipasto, a pasta, and a main course, and a dessert. So we basically, because of the price of the real estate, I said to Scott, I said, you know, we gotta design a menu where we can afford to give people a four-course prefix with small, you know, obviously a little bit small portions for a really low price. And at the time, it was 2002, it was uh, $48 for a four-course menu. And um, so everyone took the menu, basically. You know, some people went a la carb. You could do either. So somebody at the table didn't want to do that. They could do what they wanted. But really, I would say 60 70% of the people ate the food that way. And it was like a revelation for people. They said, oh my God, this is great. You know, they never. People were eating pasta as a main course, or you know, huge plate for an appetizer, or whatever the hell they were doing. And they, it, it was, it was great. And uh, we realized it was going to be a really big hit. The first week we opened, almost you know half the people were walking to the front desk and saying, uh, "Can I get another reservation? I got to bring my friends." And it was a combination of the price and also the. Sense of discovery of people finding this crazy place, Tudor City, and it was hard to get to and everything, and it had this kind of mysterious, romantic thing going on. And we ended up getting three stars there, and uh, like James Beard, and we got James Beard best new restaurant in the country, and best restaurant design. And for me, it was, uh, it was great because I spent a million, two, on the restaurant, complete top to bottom. And half a million dollars of that was to buy the lease out. <laughs> so I effectively really spent $700,000 and got best new restaurant in the country and best restaurant design. So, yeah, it was really gratifying. It was great. But I remember, like, you hired Fred Dax, and Dax was like,
0: yeah, Cannon put some, like, phone books on the bar stools to make them, like, propped up a little bit more, and he, you know. He made oh, it yeah, like,
1: well, well, you know, it was a joke, kind of, you know, when we first opened, the, they, they designed the bar stools improperly. And they were too short, so I said, you know, we're supposed to get new ones coming in a few weeks, so I said, let's make, let's, <laughs> let's have fun with it, just put, put, uh, you know, um, phone books on it for people to see. <laughs> <laughs> now, you couldn't do that in the information age, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, I always you know, kind of books. like, have a kind of a tongue-in-cheek attitude towards the restaurants, like, you know, we had these very small bathrooms there, and you know, I was like, "Oh God, what are we gonna do? We have no place for storage for like you know extra toilet paper." So I said, "Hey, you know, why don't we just put like ten rolls of toilet paper yeah, on the wall, the like, wall, to make it look like a you know an art display, you know, whatever art installation?" I ended up working great
0: because know. it was a small. I mean, you had changed like the coat closet into the bar, as I recall.
1: Like originally, yeah, it was it was this weird takeout area. We we reconfigured a lot of the restaurant, moved everything around, and uh, it was it was phenomenal. It was great, and. Um, it was really fun. The first two years were open was really fun. It was great. Everybody's coming by, oh yeah, everybody in the city, you know, all the best customers, you know chefs, you know other restaurant people, whatever um actually, going to this period I, I we totally skipped over you know in two thousand before this all happened when I was looking for space as I opened up Bar Veloce. yeah,
0: that's right Veloce and tona right,
1: and you know that was basically because it took us like two and a half years to find a space with Scott. So I had another friend of mine used to be a bartender for me, and he said, you know, I want to do this kind of wine bar thing. So it was two the year 2000. We opened up uh, on 12th Street between on 2nd Avenue, and uh, it was a 450, 500-square-foot bar, very modern style. And we did basically all the cooking behind the bar, you know, panini and salads and et cetera, et cetera, and had all Italian wine lists and uh, – we were. It was. It was great. It was like you know. Once again, it was one of these places where, uh, you know, at the time, Blue Ribbon was a big restaurant hangout, and I think Barba was like the second big restaurant hangout in the city at the time. When uh, people would come till two, three in the morning, you know, I was single at the time. I'd never get home till three in the morning every night. It was. It was also driving room. around in a sports car back then. As I recall, no, no, no. I was living no? in the city. I had no sports car. Oh no! Someone told me you were. Uh... No, I lived on 18th and Irving. I
0: used to stumble home. You know. So you did Tono, which was more of like a, a bar, eat at the bar kind of concept.
1: And a couple years later, we had us. We opened up two more Bar one at on Seventh Avenue and one down on Kenmere um, which is that uh, little square north of Chinatown. And at the time, it was kind of a ratty neighborhood, and we had this one Barbaloche there, and the neighborhood hadn't really taken off. Now it's now, well, crazy. Now it's more Marini. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't do so well, so we decided, you know, a little ways into it. We talked to Scott, and I came up with a concept to do um, Crudo. You know, Crudo was becoming really big. We did a bunch of Crudo at uh, at um, uh, Limpero, So we said, I want to do a Crudo bar, and, you know, the idea was... We did crudo behind the bar, and the crudo was all cut and um, kind of put together by uh, one of the uh, sushi guys from Morimoto in Philadelphia. So it was uh, kind of the first time when we were trying to do not only um, a little bit of fusion with Japanese, which was interesting, and um, the guy cutting the the, – just the cutting of the fish by uh, somebody who really knew how to cut fish, we would have some of the same dishes at Limpero and at Tono, so a couple of them, and they were so much better at Tono with somebody who really knew how to cut the fish. So it was really a revelation for me too. Uh, we were a little before our time though because I think um, people at the time were not used to having a kind of fine dining experience in a little bar thing. And we got you know kind of maligned by the press saying that, oh, well, you know, you can't really have a meal there. This and the other. And, you know, we never really intended it to be a f- restaurant. We intended it to be a place where you could explore Italian raw fish and have a great glass of wine. You know, and a couple of years later, that became, you know, a really big trend in the restaurant Small business. Small plates, tapas. Small plates, of bars, you know, you, you had, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Asian guy. Uh, Dave Chang. Chang. Dave Chang and all that stuff. And, all these, and now it's all over the place. But at the time, it was really... You no, know, I think we got one really nice review from Eric Asimov, who really loved it.
0: Well, he reviewed Lompero too, right? Yeah. Because yeah. he... He's a great guy. He'd filled in during that period of time, like I think.
1: Yep. So, so we actually, at that time, we were, um, we had two reviewers in to review us, which was... Was uh, that a little stressful? Yeah, because you have no idea who's going to review you. Yeah. You're like see one, and then you see the other, and, you know, we had no idea. So, um... But, you know, he gave us a great review, so we were really happy about that.
0: I remember one time you said to me, you know, the press doesn't care about perfection anymore. You have to understand that. Do you, what do you think of the changes have been in,
1: in fine dining
0: in New York? What's the difference?
1: Well, I mean, the the small plates kind of thing, the smaller restaurants. Um, I think, um, you know, the, yeah, they are trends that way. But then, you know, I mean, we, you know, I'm, I'm one of the people that opened up Morea when everyone was making hamburgers. So it's like... You have to do what makes you happy and what you think. I mean, you obviously have to do what you think the market's going to want. You know, at the time, you know, one of the problems in our business and in in business in general in the United States is that everything is very faddish and people tend to move like a pack of lemmings into the sea in one direction or the other. You know, I think, uh, you know, the hamburger craze, you know, all of a sudden every single chef in the United States wanted to make a hamburger place, you know, and make a killing. And, you know, everyone was saying, oh, you can't do any fine dining anymore. And I'm like... I was like, man, this is exactly the time when you should be doing fine dining because, you know, my sense having been been in the fine dining market was that there was only eight or nine really great fine dining restaurants in the city that were expensive and that the market, the people that go there, they weren't hurt at all by the economic crises. And they were really bored with the places that were available and there was a demand for something new. And, you know, everyone was going the other direction. So when we opened Morea, it was like. Plus you got like a year of press because there was no competition for. Well, that's another thing. You know, at the time there was nobody opening up anything really. So, you know, that was one of the other, you know, uh, decisions we made was that, you know, at a certain point with the economic crisis, we were like, oh, maybe we should, uh, you know, pull it back a little bit and not make it as uh, luxurious as it was. And I was like, no, you got to double down and push it as hard as you can. And that was because there was a big demand for that. And there was also a big demand, you know, the reason we chose seafood was that I love seafood. I started at a seafood restaurant, but um, people in general, there's not much of resistance to seafood in terms of pricing because if you go to the coast of Spain or Greece or you go to Japan or you go anywhere in the world, you go to a seafood place, it's not not inexpensive. Right. Sushi is expensive. I mean, you don't want to go to an all-you-can-eat sushi place, you know. It's like right. definitely not. So, you know, our feeling was that there wouldn't be that much resistance to the pricing at Marea because it was seafood and we were going to get the best quality seafood that we could possibly get, do it in a luxurious environment and, uh, you know, doing it in in a more accessible way, I think, than uh, a lot of the, you know, kind of four-star restaurants were, were. Conceiving their menu and their service, but you talked about the downscale hamburger
0: trend. But I felt like you were ahead of the game there too, because Convivio reopened and lowered the price point at a time when everybody was raising price points. You were the, one of well, the well, you know, Convivio was
1: uh, was one of those times. You said, you know, Chris Cannon's kind of a pit bull, and you know he he doesn't let anything fail or do it. And uh, when Mike White started with us, and we opened up, uh, we redid Alto and. We did L'Impero. I made the decision. I said, "Listen, you know, we're, we have an issue because Alto was not at first was very much Northern Italian and Alto Adige style, but then we kind of became pan-Italian, which was what we were doing at Convivio, at Limpero, I'm sorry. And so when he came on, I said, "Listen, we need to keep Alto kind of where it is, doing more of a pan-Italian, you know, high-level kind of cuisine, Alta Cucina, as it were." And we got to do something with with limpero, so we decided to make it more southern Italian. So we focused on that, and you know, to me, southern Italian food is you know, especially here in Campania, is probably the most interesting area of Italy right now for great young chefs. Um, really, a clean, balanced, you know, very pure cuisine that is just. The opposite of the red sauce cuisine from the south that people are used to, you know, really using great products from the area, doing as little as possible to it in a very classical way, and it's it's amazing. So we did that, and I, when we got reviewed, we got a double review between the two restaurants, and it was still Impero. It was Alto. L'impero. It was still Impero, and Alto at the time had two stars, and Impero had three, and Frank Bruni reviewed them, and he switched it. He gave. Three to Alto and two to Lompero, and at the time tasting all the food, I was like, I was much more happy with what Michael was doing at at Lompero. <laughs> like, but it seemed like Bruni's uh, concern was a lot about decor
0: too. Like he called it a mausoleum at
1: Lompero, which was you know kind of difficult to hear considering we won Best New Restaurant Design in the United States yeah. you know four years before. So, so I you know it was one of the few times where I was I was. I was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> so it was one of the few times actually I wrote a letter to a reviewer. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, it was a very nice letter. I said, listen, you, you can have your opinion on, on the restaurants. But, you know, once again, when you're assessing and reviewing a restaurant, the first thing you have to determine is what are the objectives of the restaurant and whether the restaurant succeeds in meeting the objectives, the obvious objectives of the owner. And, you know, he was criticizing Limpero for being less formal and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I wrote in the the letter, I said, listen, that's the intention. It's not supposed to be as formal. It's not supposed to be as expensive. But the quality of food and service, to me, is exactly – succeed every bit as much as the other restaurant. So I told him, I said, listen, you know, we're going to redo the restaurant uh, this summer coming up and, you know, I just would like you to – Consider us when we reopen. So, actually, that was one of the proudest things I ever did was that from the time we got the review um, from Bruni that demoted it, it took nine months for us to redo the place, reopen as Convivio, and get three stars again nine months later. So, um, no, and I think that I don't think very many people in the restaurant business in New York have ever taken what was a very thriving concept and just shut it down. Rejiggered it and reopened it and gotten three stars, you know, nine months later.
0: And I was on that team, and I remember people being like, "There's no way we can do this in the time that Chris says we can do it in terms of turning it around." And you, I well, think I'm you, a firm
1: believer in uh, you beat it by a day. If or you two. Uh, decide to do something, you organize right. You can do whatever you want. But just you know, you just gotta get everyone on the same page and just do it.
0: Because I, I remember people are like, I don't know, should we take reservations for, I think we open in January or something. Should we take reservations for the 15th? Are we going to really be open by
1: then? And well, that's another thing. I've always done, every restaurant I've opened pretty much, um, I, I, I book like a big party or something or whatever, like on a certain date. And I go to the contractor and the designer. I say, listen, we have a party for 100 people on this day. You have to be open. and Otherwise. It works. Yeah. You know, they, 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 There's they a say, deadline. Oh, my God. There's a deadline. Yeah. Otherwise, forget it. You never, never open on time. And I
0: remember it was uh, but I mean, it wasn't original. I think the Ruth Reichel. She came in, then she wrote something positive about it. And then it was just like the floodgates open.
1: Mm-hmm. Where? Uh, Convivial. Yeah. No. She wrote uh, something in Gourmet. Yeah. She really loved it. And then we got the. Uh, Bruni and every everyone loved it. I mean, yeah, Bruni and Platt
0: was huge. Platt well, loved it too. You know it was, one of the rare times that the Times and the Mag and the NY MAG kinda really agreed, I thought. You know. Yeah. Usually they kind of diverge a little bit.
1: Always. You know. Then they have to, you know, get their paycheck, I guess.
0: <laughs> but I mean, uh you'd switch chefs at that time. Uh how is it that uh you came across Michael?
1: Uh Michael I'd met. You know, uh, when we opened up uh, Lompero, actually, we were both, uh, Lompero and Fiamma were competing for best new restaurant in the country, you know, James Beard, and he lost to us, whatever. And, uh, and um, you know, subsequently met him at a bunch of events, and we got along really well. And, you know, when uh, I had to make the change, really, I you know, I heard he was on the way out at Fiamma, and uh, he really was one of the only people I really considered to to do the job. Because, yep. you know, he, he was taking over two restaurants. I need somebody who had a reputation. I need somebody who really understood Italian food. And um, not easy.
0: And I feel like in short order, uh, a lot of the accolades that maybe you'd wanted, whether you said it or not, they kind of all came into place. You got... Vivio, three stars on the Times. Alto got the three grand stars. award finally because mm-hmm. it had been a long time that Alto hadn't had the grand award and you finally got it. And you got two Michelin stars for Alto and you opened Moray and you got Best New Restaurant James and Two Beard. Michelin stars
1: there, uh, you know, whatever the whole thing. Opened <laughs> up
0: Marini. Mm-hmm. A lot of success in terms of the wine program. Everyone was like, oh my God, Lambrusco was a huge thing, kind of like made a category popular again. But well, that's it, where, that you know,
1: we talked before about that was one of the times when it was a very specialized restaurant dealing with a particular, really a particular region. And I decided to really take the wine list and explore something, you know, and then uh, there it was really Lambrusco. And at the time, Lambrusco, you know, was kind of maligned. It wasn't really taken seriously as a wine. And You know, I started tasting, you know, 50, 60, 70 with you. And we were sitting there tasting some really interesting, serious wines. And there was a huge gamut, a huge spectrum of different styles of wines. And it just was incredibly interesting and also a really pleasant wine to drink, especially with the kind of food we were serving. So for us, it was kind of a no-brainer to, you know, explore that and and make it a focus of the list.
0: So during that period of time with all those huge accolades, I mean, it was kind of a roller coaster going up. Um, now in hindsight, what are you really proud of from that, from that era? What really stays with you? Was are like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we did that.
1: Oh, uh, Maria. I mean, Maria to me was, um, culmination of my entire career of, you know, really trying to make something very sophisticated and refined and also at the same time comfortable and not imposing, you know, all the prices can be imposing, but. You know, the, the, in general, people, I think, really, in a fine dining atmosphere, there's a real convivial atmosphere, a real um, energy that's really fun that you don't get at a place like uh, Jean-Georges or Danielle or Per Se, you know, with similar quality food.
0: I thought it really was an amazing blend of, like, an adult, mature restaurant but still with a lot of vibe, which is hard to do both.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, I think that part of that is just that I think we transferred a lot of the, I mean, I do what I do because I love food and wine so much, and it, it to me, it's fun, and it should be fun.
0: Well, there's all those great stories. I mean, I remember one guy hanging out with you late, and you were like, "He what did he say? He was like, he he spilled some wine or something? And oh, no, that's he, a bad story. He was Actually, what?
1: that story came up uh, three days ago when I was with my, drinking copious amounts of red wine with my three brothers and that that gentleman was there oh, oh yeah yeah
0: you know, he's a big time now he's like working uh, uh yeah mr cannon the other cannon right? yeah,
1: yeah he works with my brother but come on so
0: he says like hey it was that's like three
1: a- in the morning i was drunk <laughs> he's <laughs> like well that's art he Sorry, spilled they, something he yeah, basically spilled it it looks like a rorschach thing on the yeah. on the tablecloth like so it was like it three 30 in the morning when we first stumbled on the barrel and i was like you want to see art so i took a big swig of wine and just spit it all over the table <laughs> that's <laughs> like, art, right like there. jackson pollock style yeah what, but why? I mean,
0: in Jackson an era, so I came up in the nineties, late nineties, and there was a moment where restaurants weren't hotel restaurants mm-hmm. and they weren't chain restaurants and they were fine dining restaurants. Yeah. And that was that window. And I didn't realize at the time that that was the window for that because that was the only time that fine dining wasn't in a, mostly hotels and wasn't mostly multiple. Well, man, now, now
1: it's, I mean, I, I foresee it's going to start going back to hotels because in Manhattan, it's, um... The only people who can afford to open a really good restaurant in Manhattan right now are hotels because they can subsidize the the dining experience with the rooms. But at that time, it was like you could kind of cut loose. Like, you know, independent ownership,
0: places that were busy,
1: but not hotel,
0: and you could have fun.
1: I guess. But I mean, that's always been my philosophy. You know, it's a kind of crazy Greek uh, background, you know, that I just think that food should be fun.
0: And what about wine? What do you think about wine?
1: Wine should definitely be fun. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: why is it sometimes that people don't think it is?
1: Well, I think people get caught up with being insecure about their knowledge of wine and they end up, um, you know, everyone equates, a lot of people equate uh, the value of wine with its price, um, which is unfortunate. You know, I think that uh, I've always had the philosophy that as a great restaurant, you know, you should have a great wine list and the wine list should express uh, to a large degree, you know, what you like. And that, you know, when people come to your restaurant, they're coming to experience the great stuff that you put together and the wine list you have. And you should, you know, help them with it and help them through it. I've been accused a couple of times of, you know, having wine lists that are too obscure and, you know, not enough meat and potatoes wines for people to get their hands on I'm like, well, you know, I spent a lot of money on sommeliers. I mean, you should know because I overpaid you for many years. No, just kidding. Um, but, you know, we have the amenity of somebody who really knows about wine, an owner who really knows about wine, and you should come and really go on a journey, experience it, you know, enjoy it. And a lot of times the wines that we're going to suggest, and I'm a big believer in this, are half the price or a third the price of the wine that you want to drink. And you'll have a just as good an experience or a better experience. Because I, I believe that having a sense of discovery and things is is great without being pedantic, without being, you know, like, I'm going to teach you about this. More like, hey, hold them by the hand, take, check this thing out. It's great. And, you know, it, it costs, you know, $60 for a bottle. It's phenomenal. You know, and I think that's always worked for me. And I think customers really react well to that. And what do you think about price points for fine
0: dining in general? I mean, I heard rumors that you're doing something else in Manhattan now opening up a place. I mean, what do you think? Where should a place put itself if it's going to do fine dining in terms of price point today?
1: Um, well, fine, fine dining. I mean, well, you know, the, the I mean, I've spent, uh, you know, I've taken a little time off and I've spent a lot of time dining in Manhattan and uh, dining in Brooklyn. And I've spent most of my time dining in Brooklyn. And I know there's a big... Uh, you know, kind of controversy over, you know, whether the food press is right and promoting Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. But I find that the Brooklyn Brooklyn cuisine, I mean, first and foremost, a lot of the young talent that's coming up can't afford to open anything in Manhattan, so a lot of them are moving to Brooklyn. So there's a lot of really, really talented young chefs that are they're doing great work out there. And they're not constrained by You know, $150, $200 square foot rent. They can afford to, you know, be a little more experimental in what they're doing, a little more relaxed about what they're doing. And the end result, they achieve that kind of um, sense of discovery in the dining experience and enthusiasm in the dining experience that becomes daunting and difficult when you have to pay your landlord $60,000 at the end of the month. You know, it's a, there's a freedom to not spending too much money on rent that allows you to really make it less of a business and more your home.
0: What do you think about, because, you know, when you did Morea, you did it without the cloches, without the captains, and without the gloves, the white gloves. I mean, what do you think about what Americans want from from fine dining? What what do we want in terms of the trappings of this? What is it that people Well, they're still,
1: at the very high end of the market, people still want to have a you know, special event kind of place to go to once in a while. But I think in general, people are, people want high quality food, high quality wine in a comfortable environment that, I mean, I think a sense of conviviality is really important for people. You know, I think people want to feel like they're in a place that has energy, they're, they're with other people that are having a good time, and the food and wine is great, you know. And I think that if you focus on that, you'll do well, no matter where you are. And what is it that you might be up to these days? Well, I'm working on a project with Chris Jekyll as a consultant down on uh, 13th Street, which and, is going to be very interesting. He was a chef at iFiora. He I was Fiori. a chef at iFiora. He got three stars there. He's very talented. He was a sous chef in Morimoto for many years. He's worked at 11 Madison Park. He is a really intelligent, hardworking guy who, you know, I think he's going to do really, really well. Um, we're doing a Venetian cuisine basically, you know, Adriatic kind of cuisine to a large degree. Is that kind of a return to Remy in a way? Or? Not really. We're doing it in a very different way. I don't want to get into too much detail. Sure. You know, we, we we want to have kind of a sense of discovery there as well. Um, the wine program uh, is going to be basically all Northern Italian, a lot of focus on Venetian uh, wines, and a huge focus on sparkling wine. Um, both uh, a lot of um, Prosecco, Franciacorta, Sparkling uh, Verdicchio, uh, once again, some uh, Lambrusco, but I think we'll probably have about 110 wines and I would say 30% are going to be sparkling. So it'll be really kind of interesting to really have a huge spectrum of Northern Italian sparkling wines to to go with the food.
0: And are you doing stuff in Jersey too? I know you live out there. Uh,
1: Yeah, I've got a... Very large project, a 15,000-square-foot project in Morristown that, uh, if everything works right, should open next year. And um, uh, it's called Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen, and um, it's in a 1917 landmarked, uh, unbelievably beautiful building. Um, It's going to have a casual dining component to it, an oyster wine bar, a huge cocktail lounge, a very refined Second floor 70 seat fine dining concept, a lot of banqueting, outdoor seating. Uh it's gonna be really great. And uh one of the things that's gonna drive it, I think, is you know, we're gonna have amazing food, but it's also gonna be very reasonably priced because I pay uh tenth of the rent I pay in Manhattan for space.
0: But are there challenges that are different than in in Manhattan and Jersey that you have to Yeah, have
1: to I mean I think um the audience is there. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is going to be um, staffing, I think, because you know New York is great for staffing because there's so many restaurants. There's a huge pool of, uh, of talent to draw upon, to staff a restaurant out there. I'm going to have to do a lot of training, which is going to be fun. But I, you know, I'm also a big believer in taking somebody who – if somebody has the right attitude – intentions are the most important thing. You can take anybody with the right attitude and turn them into a great waiter or a great cook or whatever you want. So to some degree, I, I like the challenge of training people and um, getting them to have a similar perspective to my own without having a lot of the preconceived ideas before they come to the restaurant. So I think it'll work out great. What? what so let's,
0: what did you take from some different experiences? So like you know, early in your career, you worked in France. Mm-hmm. French style of service, what did you take from that when you went into Italian restaurants? What did you take from those guys who kind of broke Italian uh, restaurants into the New York scene? And how does that translate into the style that you deliver for the staff today?
1: Well, I think the French style of service and the kind of regimented, heavily abusive kind of uh, management style is something that I, from day one, I decided that, you know, for me, that didn't work. So to a large degree, I believe in, you know, number one, motivating your staff to be really happy where they are. And you know, I think when we opened up Morea, you know, I kind of said to everyone there and when we hired people, I said, listen, you know, I think everybody's goal at the level of the people we were hiring was to be proud of where they work. And I said to them, I said, listen, to, if you want to be proud of where you work, It's not me to make you proud of where you work. It's you to make yourself proud of where you work. And it takes all of us together to make something great. I think – I believe always that in order to create and foster a sense of conviviality and joy in the dining experience, that starts from having a good time with your staff and treating them nicely, having fun with them every day, um, doing a lot of tasting of food and wine with them you know, expressing, you know, letting them see why the place is special. And that's something that I believe has worked for me in the past and will continue working for me in the future. And it takes a little extra work, but I think it's rewarded, you know, always. You know, I think it creates a special restaurant.
0: And you've been around a lot of high-profile openings the last, you know, in your career.
1: I think I had 13 or 14 New York Times reviews.
0: What what do you take through that process? I mean, what is really important to remember? If you're talking to a younger guy who was opening up a place and he was going for his first opening, whether it be a chef or a GM or a maitre D, what would you say to that guy?
1: You have to bring a hundred and fifty percent energy every day until you get reviewed and Yeah, it still has to carry on afterwards. You know, I mean I think um I try to, you know, press upon my staff and say, Listen, you know, yeah, during the review process we have to really Watch every single thing we're doing every day and and it's about also making adjustments every day. You know you can't start out opening a restaurant and saying to yourself, "Oh, we have a hundred percent perfect product from day one. You have a fifty percent perfect product from day one, and every day you have to spend for the first three four months really spending a lot of time with the staff discussing what went right, what went wrong every day, and adjusting small things every day. I mean when we opened at Marea we probably changed the menu. In the first two months, thirty times, you know, just because we were listening to customers and saying oh, that doesn't work, that price is wrong, we need to change this. You know, we had a much more kind of complicated menu format at the beginning, and you know, we changed certain things based on some initial comments by reviewers, et cetera. And it's it's a process. The restaurant business is always a process. Even if you're very successful, you should always be making small adjustments over time so that. You end up not being dated, and out the window in five years. I mean, and you say to yourself, well, "What happened?" You know, you got to go out to eat every day. You got to see what's going on. You got to go out to Brooklyn. You got to go, you know, and it, everywhere. Go to San Francisco. You know, you got to really be on top of it. So intuitively, you know what to do.
0: Uh, in the eighties, it seemed like there was a lot more restaurant tours. Guys who maybe had started as captains, maitre d' owned the restaurant, worked as a partner on the front of the house side maybe interacted with the kitchen but didn't come up through the kitchen. Now we've seen you know, the rise of chef owners, people like Daniel Blue, people like John George. How do you think that's affected the market, and where does it leave the wine side if you see more and more chef owners who are maybe less focused on the cellar?
1: No, I think the best chefs are very focused on the cellar. I think they really understand that they need to be focused on the cellar. As far as uh, the business is concerned, um, you know, it's a different period. I think that now chefs are the driving force in terms of the economics of the restaurant business because it's become you know the entertainment business, and the chefs are the stars. The chefs are what sells the restaurant. The chefs are what uh, capital goes to in terms of financing and you know. So people who you know the the traditional restaurant type is it's it's tough. It's not easy. Um, I think the one person has done it better than anyone else is Danny Meyer. You know, and I think that uh, to a large degree understood that at an early time that he needed to package himself as a product and really convince people that he, you know, held the key to great service and a consistent product. And, you know, he's done a great job in managing to make himself really important and drive his restaurants.
0: So, I mean, you've had a lot of ups had a few setbacks and some down periods. What do you take from those? What do you remember when they're happening that lets you come no, back? When they're
1: happening? No, you <laughs> want to talk about that? No, I think um, no because matter. I always try to say back. you know, no matter what happens to you, it's a learning experience, and you have to keep moving forward and and uh, and using it either as motivation to push you forward, or you know, it, it allows you to keep fresh. I think if you take that attitude. You know, right now, I think that, um, what I'm doing in New Jersey, I might be doing another project in New Jersey too, but I'm not really sure if that's going to happen or not. But, I, I believe that opening up a place like I'm opening in New Jersey is going to allow me to do what I really want to do, which has always been to provide a surprising, interesting, reasonably priced experience that people will remember for a long time. And, um, it's hard to do that, man. yeah no.
0: a lot of people a lot a lot a lot of people come up to me and say, "Is Chris okay? what's going on with chris you know is, is I, he all I'm, right? I'm
1: better than ever kidding me, so that's what I want to know how you doing Are you kidding me I'm, I'm with my three beautiful children every day, having a good time. I cook dinner every night, I'm you know actively designing my place in Jersey and working on this project in the city, so you know, it's nice. Uh, I miss being on the floor every day, but it's nice to to be relaxed and uh, you know to really have perspective to really look at what I really want to do, and I'm doing what I really want to do. So, you know, I feel like I'm you know 25 years old again. I'm really excited.
0: One of the things you have a reputation for is being a chef builder. A lot of times, people look at you as a guy who finds talented kitchen talent and really works with them, brings it out, brings it forward. Edits menus in a way that really works for the talent in the kitchen and for the customer in the dining room. Why do you think you have that reputation and how
1: did you build it? Well, I think that, you know, when I work with guys, they understand that. I mean, I spent a couple years in the kitchen and, you know, I generally take them home with me and I cook for them first. So they understand that, you know, yeah, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And then over time, you know, obviously we put the, I'm very, very clear in my Concepts of menu and whatever I you know I, I I speak to them in a way where you know they know it's almost like a chef talking to a chef in terms of what we're going to do in terms of the customer. Um, but I give them a lot of latitude. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, I've chosen you because you have talent. You need to express your talent. So you you basically are a, a producer. You know, like a of a Broadway show or whatever. You get the talented director or whatever it is, and you're there to. Provide them with the right tools, environment, you know, et cetera, to express what they want to express. But you also have the capacity to edit that in a way where it's not, you know, a lot of, I mean, I think it was a Kirby Enthusiasm. I think it was where there was a, an episode where there's, they have a chef whatever and they, they have a restaurant and, you know, they get in a meeting with the chef and they're like, talking about the menu and it's not, the menu's not working and they go, well, you know, it's, um it's too saucy, you know, and the chef looks and I'm like, what the, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm the opposite of that. I can sit there and say, okay, the sauce is wrong because there's not a facility there's whatever for the dish and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't jibe with the rest of the menu or, you know, I've, I've had chefs do, you know, put the same kind of protein in four dishes and you're like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> you can't have a menu with four of the same dishes on the menu. It, it, it just, you know, and I, I think I express a sense of joy about the food that, that chefs, most chefs, feel the same way about food. And to me, the restaurant business is a business, yes, but to me it's not really a business. It's uh, it's about passion. It's about fun. It's about sharing experience with people. And I think that I I'm capable of understanding and sharing the joy of food with the guys that work with me, the chefs. And I think it comes across in when they work with me in a way that resonates with people.
0: One of the things I realized about you is that you had, when I met you, so many relationships, close friends, uh, business associates, it just went back so far. I mean in a way that I've known a lot of famous people and very successful people in the restaurant industry in New York and other places, but you really seem to have some peeps that, that went back a ways. Who are some of the people that really have been close and supportive to you over the years? Are you really No, from? there's a
1: number of people in the wine business. I think Dino Dentaui, um Libio Bianco, Michael Skernick, uh D- David Newland, uh, Paul Greco, um, you know all the guys, partners that I've had in the past. You know, uh, you know, Bill Telepan's still really friendly. All the chefs i work with are friendly. Even even the ones that we've broken up with. You know, they, we had issues at times. They're, I still am friendly with them. And you're still pals with Scott and stuff. Yeah, we talk. I mean, I, I'm not calling him every day, but yeah. you know, we're very civil. And you know, I listen. People do things for the reasons they want to do it. And at the time, and I don't really take it against them. I mean, like, to me, it's like, you know, hey, we had a great time when we were together. You split up, You see each other later. It's great. It's fine. You know, it's you've done what you wanted to do. I'm doing what I want to do, and it's it's great. One of the things you told me is, uh, I remember one time I was having a tough time,
0: and you're like, you can't get mad about this stuff. You were like, you can't, you just can't get angry. Don't get angry. And uh, you know, I remember that really clearly because uh, uh, you, you had a way of just kind of realizing that you can sink it all into you and that's worse. That's the worst thing that can happen. No, I think, you know, you
1: know I, a couple of years ago I realized that uh, effectively, you know, you can really control nothing that happens in your life and, you know, the only thing you can control is how you behave in the face of adversity or difficulty or whatever and, you know, you just got to chill out, you know, just like sit back and look at it and figure out what you want to do next and in the end result uh, – what guides me is what i said before that kind of desire to seek this really convivial fun expression of what i do and create an environment that people resonate with that feel that it's special and interesting and different and that's what i do you know and i, I think i do it well and you know that's what i'm interested in i'm not really interested in opening up a bunch of units of a restaurant to make a lot of money because to me, those restaurants are, yeah, they're like Starbucks. I mean, I'm not, I'm not interested in doing that.
0: You know, one of the things that's interesting or not, not so fun, actually, about New York is that when people are on top, everyone wants to be their pal. And then when people are not doing so well, it seems like, you know, a lot of times people get forgotten about it and people don't call so much. But one of the things I found about you is that you're enduringly popular. You've had, some, you've had some really high ups. You've had some times that were a little more difficult. And no matter what, uh, there was, you know, people really went to bat in terms of things that they would say when you weren't around and you've always been very popular. Why, why do you think that that may be, why do you think that you kind of go against the, the New York reign of we're going to still love this guy even when he's not on top?
1: Because I think in the same the you know, people have known me for 30 years, they know I'm pretty much the same person. I mean, uh, you know, as you said before, when you have huge success, you just gotta, you know, Hey, I'm lucky I got it. You know, let's just, Keep our heads grounded and keep doing what you do. And you know, I've always said to my staff, it's like, okay, now you're best new restaurant in the country. Now you have more of an obligation to keep people, you know, keep people happy. And it's hard. And you got to focus every day and do the right things. And you know, people like coming to me after Maria and that that period, all the restaurants. Oh, you're a mogul. You're this. You're that. And I'm like, no, I just I'm just doing my job. You know, it's like this is what I do. And you know. There's a lot of people, as you said, who come and want to be your friend, and uh, only because "quote unquote" you're you're there. And I'm like, you know, I'm friendly with them, but I, you know, I'm like, there's, I've, uh, you know, on my ten fingers, that's how many friends, real friends, I have, and I, I'm a guy who, my family is the most important thing to me, and uh, you know, and. Being real is very important to me. And my reputation is, of course, the most important thing to me. And through thick and thin, up and down, as you said, you know, I think the top people in the business, they see me, they talk about me, they're like, hey, he's always the same, he's consistent, he's a straight shooter. I say things that people don't want to hear sometimes. And I, I, I try to tell the truth all the time, what, what my opinion is. And I think that uh, makes me consistent is it tough to look around and know that you've done a great amount
0: of work in the restaurant business and yet don't seem to have a clearly defined legacy at this moment or does that not bother you at all or do you see a legacy somewhere that may be less apparent to me
1: i i, I don't want to you know I, I think my legacy will be evident in the future you know i've got a lot more stuff to do so, what's
0: your favorite drinking story,
1: sir? <laughs> back to that. Okay. Uh, Dino Tentawi's been on this show before, and he's a very good friend of mine for many, many years. And um, when I was in my more formative years, you know, maybe at uh, Judson Grill, we used to, with a lot of my friends, we would just go out and not plan on going to any restaurant, just like go from one restaurant to the next to the next and just have a bite here, a bite there, et cetera, et cetera. So, one night I was with Dino and we went. To like three or four restaurants. And at each one, we're having cocktails in one and Negroni's here and some wine there, and then another restaurant. And then we ended up, uh, his car was parked near the Chefs and Cuisiniers Club, which was on 22nd, I think it was, a long time ago. It was um, a place uh, that, um, what's his name, Charlie Palmer owned. And uh, so we went in there at the end of the night. And Dino was pretty legendary. He was drinking, um, acumen. You know, he was big Austrian-Turkish guy. You know, he swam against Mark Spitz in the '72 Olympics. He's crazy, boisterous, bon vivant, crazy guy around town. So we finally ended up at this place. You know, right next to where he parked his car. Went inside, and I was like, "Oh God, I need a glass of water." So we get a glass of water from the bartender. He takes a slug of the water and says, okay, let's go, back. Go, go get your car. So we were walking down, you know, close to Park Avenue there. And right in the middle of the street, he just throws up all over the street. <laughs> and I was like, Dino, what's going on? He said, oh, I should never drink water. <laughs> and to this day, I remember that. That was very interesting.
0: <laughs> the one, the only Chris Cannon. Thank you very much. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.